0: the old pilot's plain tails, sidewinders, and sparrows. A sidewinder is a nasty reptile which is formally named Crotalus cerastes, but also goes by the more descriptive title the horned or sidewinder rattlesnake. It's generally found in the regions of the southwest United States and northwest Mexico also found in the Mojave Desert, where they're known locally but slightly unimaginatively as the Mojave Desert Sidewinder. I only mention this as the area is also home to the Naval Air Weapons Station China Lake. The vast airspace there, larger than the state of Rhode Island, is jointly controlled by Edwards Air Force Base and Fort Irwin. The link will become apparent shortly. Crotalus sedastes is a pit viper, renowned for its speed of travel. At 18 miles an hour, which is nearly 30 kilometers an hour, it is by a considerable margin the fastest snake in the world. It achieves this record by an unusual form of motion known as lateral undulation. Simply put, it anchors the rear of its body in the desert sand and then thrusts forward the front portion through the air. Once in contact with the sand again, the rear part catches up. This action minimises contact with the hot sand and it is practised by several species of snake but none as speedily as the sidewinder. The common sparrow isn't nearly as dramatic as a desert living pit viper but it has certainly become more successful as a species. It's a small part of the passeridae genus Passer, and being a small plump brown or grayish bird, they're quite unremarkable. A seed-eater? They've been around since the early Miocene period, about 23 million years ago, and have colonized every continent except Antarctica. They can be found from Buenos Aires to Alaska, New Zealand to Cape Town and are the most widespread birds in the world. Despite their obvious differences, Sidewinders and Sparrows often went together because they aren't just the names of flying creatures and slithering serpents. They are weapons of war known as missiles. For years I thought a missile was named because it missed its target as opposed to a hitile. I got this from the joke put about by the Rapier missile operators as because of the Rapier's accuracy, it only had a contact fuse so needed to hit the target to detonate. Historically, the word comes from the Latin missilis, meaning that may be thrown, such as a stone, arrow, javelin or bullet. From the Latin, the French altered it into the common missile, which dates back to its use in 1636, referring to a projectile. In more recent times, in military parlance, a missile is described as a self-propelled weapon, the trajectory of which can be adjusted after launch. This separates it from dumb weapons, such as artillery rockets, that are purely ballistic in nature. Of course, those unguided rockets are the father, indeed the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of modern missiles. Their origin is recorded in the 10th century Song dynasty of China when gunpowder-powered arrows were fired in the hundreds from launchers. As early as 1232, rockets with warheads made of iron pots filled with gunpowder could devastate an area of 2,000 feet around 600 meters with shrapnel. The Fire Drake Manual, written by a Chinese artillery officer, even describes multi-stage rockets. The Mongols adopted the technology, and their use has been recorded in the Middle East, India, Korea, and Europe from the 1300s onwards. In 1792, the first iron-cased rockets were used by Tipu Sultan, the ruler of Mysore in India, against the British East India Company. They had a range of over a mile, and after the Sultan's eventual defeat... 600 launchers, 700 serviceable rockets, and 9,000 empty rockets were found. Some of the rockets had pierced cylinders to allow them to act like incendiaries, while some had iron points or steel blades bound to the bamboo. These blades caused the rockets to become very unstable towards the end of their flight— resulting in the blades spinning around like flying scythes and cutting down all in their path. The British went on to use the technology to develop the Congreve rocket, employed by the Royal Navy in the Napoleonic Wars. Our interest is in a more sophisticated theatre of war, when fighters used rockets to engage other aircraft, and it wasn't until the Battle of Kalkin Gull, when a Japanese Nakajima Ki-27 fighter was hit by a salvo of rockets fired by a Polikarpov I-16 that the first kill was recorded. Although a total of 16 fighters and 3 bombers were apparently brought down during the conflict by this weapon, the RS-28 rockets used were unguided, The usefulness of such weapons was very limited, as they could be easily dodged by an agile aircraft. That didn't stop their development during the Second World War to counter the massed Allied formations of bombers, and the German R4M was highly successful, albeit too late to affect the outcome of the war. Their name was an abbreviation of Racket Vier Kilogramm Mein or rocket 4 kilogram minehead. The rocket's disadvantage included the drag of carrying them in an underwing part. The advantages meant that overall they were lighter than an equivalent heavy cannon with all its ammunition. The R4Ms were supersonic and carried a powerful explosive warhead that would guarantee to bring down a fighter with only one hit. If a fighter launched all 24 at about half a mile, they would hurtle towards a bomber formation at over 1,100 miles an hour and saturate an area 50 by 100 feet, almost guaranteeing a hit. Advances in electronics would spell the end of unguided rockets in air-to-air combat, but they had a last hurrah with the Air 2 genie. The Soviet Air Force tactics during the Cold War were believed to consist of large, regiment-sized formations of bombers that would sweep across NATO borders to devastate North America and European countries. One of the defences devised to counter these mass attacks was an unguided air-launched missile that carried a 1.5-kiloton nuclear warhead. Carried by fighters such as the F-89 Scorpion and the F-101 Voodoo, with future conversions of the F-104 Starfighter, the F-102 Delta Dagger, and even the English Electric Lightning were considered. 3,000 Genie rockets were constructed. Fired from about six miles from an enemy formation, the genie would accelerate to Mach 3.3 for a 12-second flight time, followed by a timed detonation of the warhead that was expected to devastate everything within a thousand feet, about 300 metres from it. There was only ever one live trial of this weapon, Operation Plumbob, which was held over the Yucca Flats within the Nevada test site a group of five United States Air Force officers volunteered to stand in their light summer uniforms beneath the explosion to prove that the weapon was safe for use over populated areas and chase aircraft flew through the airburst ten minutes after detonation. Those in the air received the highest doses of gamma and neutron radiation. These weapons remained an option for the United States and Canadian air forces until as late as 1985. The era of guided air-to-air missiles started shortly after World War II when the Firebird subsonic radar-guided missile was developed in 1947. This was pretty quickly rendered obsolete by the Hughes AIM-4 Falcon which entered service with the USAF in 1956. Designed to engage slow-manoeuvring bombers, when it was used during the Vietnam War, it proved pretty ineffective against agile fighters, and lacking a proximity fuse, it needed to strike its target to detonate. Only five kills were recorded. It was soon superseded by the AIM-9 Sidewinder, called after its grounded namesake from the deserts below the test ranges, because both were capable of detecting the heat of their prey. The United States Navy were responsible for the project, and they would subcontracted production to companies such as Raytheon and General Electric. The Sidewinder missile used many advanced techniques to solve the problem of getting from fighter to target. Early versions used materials such as lead sulphide and indium and dimonide which detect the infrared heat sources at different wavelengths covering both the exhaust plume and the hot jet pipe and they were cooled to increase sensitivity. The IR radiation entered the seeker head through a series of mirrors which focused them onto a small rotating disc called a chopper, or more correctly, the reticule. It was then refocused by a lens before reaching the IR-sensitive detector. All the detector did was register the heat source, or not. It was the chopper that did all the guidance. It looked like a pizza, with a few alternate slices removed from one side. These gaps would allow the IR to pass through. As the chopper rotated at around a 100 times a second, the source might first appear at the top, the 12 o'clock. As the disks span, the presence of the target heat source would be chopped a few times before disappearing as the large opaque segment obscured it, The signal would then appear as flash, 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 followed by a blank period. If the target was at the bottom or six o'clock of the disk, the signal would be reversed, uh, a blank period followed by four flashes. In this way, the target orientation could be determined. The frequency modulation of the target would be found by the length of the pulses. At the edge of the pizza, where the crust is, the pulses would be long, a low frequency, but as the target approached the juicy center, they would get shorter and become higher in frequency. The mirrors could deflect to see the target off boresight, and the guidance system would pass instructions to the wings to move and steer the missile. The front end was where all the electronics and power for the wings was packed, so the rear wings didn't move. They just provided stability through an ingenious but very simple system. On the rear wing tips, there were rotating discs with little notches on them to catch the wind. They were housed in a little hinged control vane that could freely deflect left or right. Like a water wheel in a river. When the missile moved through the air, the stabilizers would spin up, and if the missile began turning, the gyroscopic force on the disks, precessed through 90 degrees, would force the vanes to move, countering the spin by creating an opposing aerodynamic force. Behind the seeker head was the guidance system, the brains of the device. It would have been very simple for the missile to just fly straight at the heat source, called a pure pursuit line, but this has disadvantages. Unless a shot is from directly behind, flying pure pursuit means the missile flies a curved path, particularly if the target is trying to evade. It also requires a lot of turn at the end of flight to make the final corner when the missile will be at low energy. Instead, the guidance logic used sightline spin, the rate of angular movement of the target, to predict where it would be in a few seconds and head off in that direction. This was called full lead prediction. It was a shorter path than pure pursuit, but had problems as that imaginary point in space where the intercept would occur could be moved very rapidly by target evasion, which would deplete the missile's energy. The compromise was a combination of the two, called proportional navigation. Having got to our unlucky target, the missile now had to know when to go bang. This was achieved by using one of the triggers – The ideal result would be if the missile actually struck the target. The impact would send a firing pulse to the warhead, and so in addition to the kinetic force of impact, there would be an explosive one as well. If the missile missed, it only needed to be close enough to trigger the passive infrared or active radar fuse, which would detonate the warhead, as its beam was cut by the target. It was designed to occur just before the missile passed the enemy aircraft to give the warhead time to get to maximum effectiveness. Warheads varied from an expanding rod type to blast fragmentation. The expanding rod system was made up of a circular tube of steel rods that were alternately joined at the front and then the back. When the warhead, usually around ten pounds, four and a half kilos of high explosive, went off, the rods would expand out into a big circular buzzsaw that would cut through the target. The blast fragmentation type would act just like a big hand grenade. Initially only usable when nearly directly behind a target, improvements resulted in an all-aspect capability for the Sidewinder. The Sidewinder was a short-range combat missile, so for longer-range engagements, in conjunction with the Douglas Aircraft Company, the Navy developed a semi-active radar-guided missile, which became known as the Sparrow. The AIM-7 family has developed into a highly effective medium-range missile and is only now being phased out in favour of the AIM-120 AMRAAM. The Sparrow is a big missile. It weighs around 400 pounds, nearly 200 kilograms, and is some 12 feet, about 3.7 meters in length. Not having a radar transmitter itself, for guidance, It relies on the firing aircraft to illuminate the target with a continuous beam of carry-away radiation which limits the firer's situational awareness. Once locked on in order to put a missile in the air, they lose sight of any other radar targets they might have previously detected. However, unlike infrared, which can be dispersed by atmospheric effects, rain and cloud, etc., Radar is all-weather. On the other hand, an IR source is small, whilst a radar return is large, which results in a much bigger miss distance and therefore requires a good radar proximity fuse and a large warhead. The all-aspect capability of the Sparrow also needs much greater complexity in guidance laws, homing capability and fusing systems, and the relatively long range of the missile gives other tactical problems. Being able to launch BVR, beyond visual range, raises many tactical problems, which I'll chat about in the next tale. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you're listening to this, you probably already know that Plane Tales is also a standalone podcast. And if you enjoy listening to Plane Tales, then why not help us out and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast of choice? Many thanks for listening.